Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Kelly Blahos, as we try to uh, take apart the the ideological delusions of the Washington uh, foreign policy blob. And as we approach the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War, uh, that's more necessary than ever, as a host of hawks and dead-enders have been trying to uh, salvage their reputations and, and to try to spin the war as something other than the, the massive crime and disastrous blunder that it was. And so we've seen a lot of these pieces coming out uh, in connection with the anniversary uh, that's coming up, uh, March 19th and March 20th, uh, which will be after this show airs. Uh, a few have appeared in Foreign Affairs, and also there's a new history book by Melvin Leffler, Confronting Saddam Hussein, uh, which is which purports to be the first really scholarly work of history on the lead-up to the war and on the decision to invade, uh, which has been... Uh, criticized pretty roundly by a number of people for being far too deferential to its sources and far too uh, easygoing on the Bush administration, basically letting the Bush administration make excuses uh, and justifications for their uh, terrible uh, policy blunder. Uh, and in foreign affairs, uh, in the new issue this spring, we have a couple of pieces, one by a notorious interventionist Max Boot, uh, who wrote something called What the Neocons Got Wrong, and he's now distancing himself from his former uh, allies, or, or those that he would call his former allies, uh, as he tries to uh, rehab his own uh, position uh, within the foreign policy establishment, as he tries to, to curry favor with uh, people that aren't uh, still uh, dead-enders about the war. Uh, so, Kelly, uh, what do you make of all of these attempts to uh, try to, to spin the war and, and to whitewash the war uh, as we approach the 20th anniversary. Well, I think they're taking advantage of the fact that there are a lot of people out there working in the foreign policy space who were children during the 9-11, the aftermath, and the invasion of the Iraq War, and a lot of people who have forgotten the granular details and the everyday back and forth during that run up to the war and their and the support for the war over nine years before we finally got out of there. Um, so I think that there's a sense of stepping into a breach in which a lot of people have largely forgotten or put at a distance uh, their their feelings for the war and their knowledge of the um, the events that led to it. So you have people like, David Frum, for example, just came out with an article who joins Eli Lake in doubling down for re support for the war, basically saying, yeah, it was really messy, but Saddam Hussein is gone and we could have done better um, reconstruction, but Iraq is in a better place. And as you and I know, Dan, that is such a load of really vile bullshit because we we're looking at a country now uh, where at, 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 the, at the very best, there is a functioning government, but it's barely functioning. And it's riddled with tribal corruption to the extent that they were pretty much paralyzed for half the year or more last year. They finally got a working government, but nobody seems very confident 
that people are getting paid, civil workers are actually getting paid, that Iraq, regular Iraqis are making anything close to a, a, a living wage, uh, that people are getting services like basic health care and clean water, um, education. So to say that, well, at least Saddam Hussein is gone, it is, it is such a um, distortion of what is happening there. And beyond that, at the very worst end, we have whole cities like Mosul that are still in ruins with bodies buried under the rubble because we had to go back in there in 2013 and 2014 to help the Iraqis get rid of ISIS and help to bomb these cities to get rid of them. And then then skedaddled out of there without even helping them rebuild. And so you have a uh, parts of this country are have just been frozen in time 20 years ago with rubble um, munitions that we left behind that are bleeding into the soil and in the water there. Because if you don't have a government that can actually even pay your workers and have a functioning health care, do you think you're, you're going to have environmental regulations? So everything we did to pollute that country is just sitting there further polluting that country. And so when I hear Eli Lake and, and David Frum and others uh, try to justify their positions and keeping and bringing us to war and keeping us there. I am reminded of, I, 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 I am compelled to revisit all of the ugliness of the war and the scars that they left behind that these two guys refuse to acknowledge. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that's one of the things that you see across all of these uh, retrospectives coming from uh, big war supporters is that they, they even if they acknowledge the human costs of the war, they do so very dismissively in passing uh, with, with little consideration of the, the significance of what they're saying. This is a war that resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, the displacement of millions more people. Uh, before the war broke out in Syria, millions of Iraqis were living as refugees in Syria. And only because these conditions in Syria got so bad that they had to flee back home uh, to to a country that was still devastated and, and where they still didn't have much uh, as a way of making a living when they got home. Uh, and, and you mentioned the, the rise of ISIS. Well, the, ISIS was an offshoot of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which did not exist prior to the invasion. Mm-hmm. The invasion created that branch of Al-Qaeda brought jihadist terrorism into Iraq, which had not been there before. And countless Iraqis died as a result of that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, as ISIS grew, that then spread and, and terrorized not just people in Iraq, but also in Syria, uh, and, and has been responsible for prolonging conflict in both countries now, uh, even up till now. So it's it's been, uh, it's, it's been a rolling disaster um, with a massive human cost that will, will never be repaired, of course. There's no way to undo that damage. There's no way to, to fix all of the lives lost and destroyed and all of the people injured as a result of these conflicts. And so, so the idea that the country is somehow better off now than it was before the invasion is, is ludicrous. And, and, and the other thing that 
that nobody seems to talk about, or at least nobody in any of these high-profile platforms seems to talk about, is that the war was quite simply illegal. It was a war of aggression. Not, not only did Iraq not have any of the weapons programs that it was supposed to have had, that, that served as the, the technical or the, as the pretext for the invasion, but even if they had had them, the U.S. had no right to invade the country, had no right to attack and overthrow their government, uh, not least because we were not acting in self-defense. We, we were not attacked by them. We were not threatened by them. And so it, it was a, a straight-up case of, of blatant aggression, criminal aggression, uh, that also had very terrible effects. But even if the effects had not been as bad as they were, it still would have been a massive crime. Hmm. And, and, and there's really no reckoning with that fact. Uh, you, you see a lot of people around the world responding to U.S. and allied rhetoric about Ukraine and the illegal war is being waged against Ukraine by saying, well, but, you know, where, where was all of your concern about international law and the U.N. charter when you were attacking Iraq? And, and for a lot of people in the West, this sounds like whataboutism and, and an attempt to deflect from what Russia is doing or something like that. But it's actually a legitimate question. What, why is it that when we do it, it's permissible and, and it's just a mistake? It's just something that happens. But when another country commits cross-border aggression, then it's the greatest threat to the world that we've ever seen. If, if one is a terrible crime, then so is the other, and we have to be consistent about it. If anybody, if we want anyone to take us seriously when we talk about it in these other cases. And, and it's impossible for people to take us seriously when we talk about this because we never hold any of the policymakers and decision makers accountable for that crime. And, and to this day, not a one of them has paid a single, uh, uh, the, the slightest price for what they've done. Right. In, in, in worse, they are still being um, turned to by the media as credible sources for political and national security punditry. I mean, David Frum has, has spent the last 10 years writing about how terrible Donald Trump is and sort of uh, shedding some of his harder core neocon positions. But as I said, he just published a piece in The Atlantic justifying his position. And, and, and let's get it straight. He was the guy who created the whole term access of evil for George Bush, which basically created out of whole cloth what should have been a U.S. military response to those individuals and powers that attacked us on 9-11 into a global war on terror that included North Korea and Iran as one of the chief enemies of the United States. It was He was responsible for getting that into the speech, and he has defended that. He's written books about how great George W. Bush is, um, and he continues to have a perch at the Atlantic. Um, he so I, I I blame our our media culture for being shallow, uh, for being venal, for turning to the blob and people they feel will um, help them in, in in status and and ratings and access and and not recognizing the lessons that we needed to learn and you know 
hey, I don't have much confidence in, in, in the media on that score, but you're absolutely correct. We are looking at a situation in which the United States is supporting a proxy war in Ukraine as though none of this happened 20 years ago, none of the failures of Iraq, all of the expectations that we were going to liberate people there, we were going to help reconstruct their civil society, establish a functioning democracy, rebuild their cities, and, and, and ditto for Afghanistan. We see what a failure that's been, but yet we're not supposed to use any of that as um, a basis for doing things differently in the future. We're just going to go full scale, full throttle ahead in Ukraine, and somehow all that will work next time. And you see that in the language that's being used by our officials, where they talk about how it is important to uh, preserve democracy in Ukraine. You, you, you have um, articles that have been written in the Washington Post and the New York Times about the uh, anticipated reconstruction of Ukraine and all this money that's going to be poured into it and what we're going to do to help Ukrainians do that. And I'm thinking, did you just see what happened in Afghanistan? We poured billions, if not trillions of dollars into both countries and then left both in shambles with projects and buildings and bridges that fell apart when we left. And so I, you know, it, it is really disappointing. I'm, I'm glad we have the opportunity with an anniversary to um, revisit all of this and remind people what happened, but it is, it is frustrating nonetheless. Definitely. And, and we see that really there, there have been very few, if any lessons learned from the experience of these wars, especially the, the Iraq war. Uh, and, and we'll be talking in the next segment with uh, Quincy Institute President uh, Andrew Misevich uh, about his new piece in foreign affairs called The Reckoning That Wasn't, but how, how the, uh, the reckoning that should have taken place in the wake of these wars uh, simply hasn't happened. And in fact, all the war in Ukraine has served to uh, paper over that, uh, those failures and, and to distract from uh, the, the major errors that our policymakers have made over the last two decades. And so uh, stay tuned for, uh, for that interview coming up. Proud to welcome to the show today one of my favorite people in the world, Andrew Basevich. Andy is a professor emeritus of Boston University, the co-founder and chairman of the board of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, the author of numerous books, including his latest, Paths of Descent, Soldiers Speak Out Against America's Misguided Wars. He is also a regular columnist and writer with his most recent in the Boston Globe entitled The Self-Deceiver, Self-Deceived Deceivers of War. Welcome to the show, Professor. Kel, if you call me Professor one more time, I'm going to scream. I had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> Come on, we're pals. Okay. Well, welcome to the show, Andy. Thanks, Kel. <laughs> um, I'd like to ask you about that last piece I mentioned, your column in The Globe, commemorating the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq this week. Um, you invoke the Vietnam War, for which you yourself served as an Army officer, and you write, 
As in Vietnam, however, the self-deceived deceivers advising Bush, Dick Cheney, Condoleezza Rice, Donald Rumsfeld, and Paul Wolfowitz, along with their media enablers, confronted a stubborn adversary unimpressed by American ideological pretensions and unintimidated by U.S. military might. Instead of a quick victory, the result was an agonizingly protracted war that evoked innumerable comparisons with Vietnam itself. Andy, do you remember what you were thinking on the eve of those first missile strikes against Baghdad on March 20th, 2003? Had you already sensed that history may be repeating itself or did that come after? Oh, I... I, I think the simple answer is after. What 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 I think I felt, to the extent that I can remember, was uh, a sense of anxiety. Uh, and the source of the anxiety was twofold. Uh, first, w- w- related to some of the, the the claims and justifications made by the uh, the George W. Bush administration about what the 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 likely effects outcomes of the war was going to be things were going to be made much better you know the region would be stabilized democracy would spread f- freedom would flourish we would america would accomplish its mission those sorts of claims which which echoed claims made about the vietnam war at its beginning just struck me as preposterous and the second part, I think, related to the, the, the optimism with regard to the likely course of the military conflict. Uh, in 2002-2003, I think most Americans, even those who shouldn't have, should have known better, took, it for gran- took American military supremacy for granted. I mean, by golly, look what we had done uh, to Saddam Hussein back in, in 1991. I think wildly mistaken, viewed as one of the great victories of all time. I'm returned to, referring to Operation Desert Storm. Uh, and it just seemed to me that there was this uh, inflated uh, set of expectations that, that flew in the face of everything that we know about war, uh, about its, uh, you know, the, the, the complexities the, the, the difficulty of predicting outcomes in advance, the difficulty of knowing what the character of a particular war is going to be once the opposing forces are joined in, in, in combat. And that was all sort of wished away, I think, uh, in this, this moment of optimism. I think that's what I felt uh, back then. Yeah, it was tough times, too. I mean, I think... I think you and I were probably in in the same headspace. Uh, I think the American conservative was just getting off the ground because that magazine had been launched as a um, criticism or a resistance to the neoconservative push towards that particular war. But I think that there was still some sense that uh, there would be more of a Persian Gulf one situation where it would be quick, like, uh, what did they call it? You know, shock and awe. Uh, and then everything would fall into place. I don't think anybody 
Well, you know, I mean, uh, God bless the American Conservative magazine. Yeah. Uh, but it seems to me that way back then it was out of step. I think I think I wasn't I wasn't writing for the magazine yet, but I mean it was I think consciously out of step, consciously uh, challenging the the neoconservative perspective. And let's I mean, I, to me today the neoconservative impact on the political scene, to the extent that I can tell, is vastly diminished. You yeah. know that that they're still out there. You know, mm-hmm. Robert Kagan is still writing books and, and writing essays and this column still in the Washington Post. But it doesn't seem to me that the, that the same vibe exists, that, you know, the neocons got a lock on truth uh, and that therefore they need to be listened to. Well, they were being listened to at, at that time, back in 2002, 2003. Yeah. And I think they've really tried to enjoin this autocracies versus democracies Movement and they and they were they started this in earnest during the Trump administration. And I got the sense I'm like, okay, they know they've been licked on the Afghan, Iraq, global war on terror front. And so I saw them sort of shifting resources into this new effort. It's it's a rebrand thing, rebranding. You know, I don't I don't know these people personally, so it's difficult to know whether they are you know, completely cynical uh, or or whether they're in, in a sense principled, but their their principles have a sort of malleability uh, that they can adjust to uh, different circumstances sort of without without missing a beat. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're they've they've changed the tune at the same time. They're singing the same. tune. <laughs> well, I just want to ask you one more question on the, the Boston Globe piece. Um, You write, to this very day, American culture and politics bear the scars of Vietnam. Based on preliminary results, the legacy of the Iraq war will be similarly unfortunate. In no small measure, the horrors falling under the heading of Trumpism and culminating in the insurrection of January 6, 2021, can be traced directly back to Bush's cadre of self-deceived deceivers. Put simply, were it not for the Iraq war, Donald Trump would likely have never become president. The irony of our present moment is that Vladimir Putin has prompted the emergence in Washington of a new cohort of self-deceived deceivers uh, when Biden depicts the Ukraine war as a battle between democracy and autocracy and between liberty and and repression. He revives these simplistic ideological justifications for war. So, First, what did you mean that the Iraq, the Iraq war and Bush's self-deceived deceivers led to Trump? And second, Trump is gone now. Why do you still fear that Biden may be the third iteration <laughs> or gone for now? But why do you think Biden will bring back a third iteration of Vietnam in Ukraine? So, uh, so on, on Trumpism, you know, it's, it's a 750 word op-ed if somebody charges me with oversimplifying things, I will plead guilty. <laughs> that said, it, it, it really does seem to me that the, uh, the, the answer to the question, how did somebody like Donald Trump ever become president of the United States? The answer is a complicated one. I, I, I mean, I would be the first to acknowledge that. Uh, but I, I, I believe quite strongly uh, that 
the the Iraq war the the whether they're outright lies or uh, errors in judgment, however, we that 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 the the, the debacle of the Iraq War contributed in a measurable way to the sense of anger and alienation among large numbers of our fellow citizens that then created an opening for somebody like Donald Trump to offer himself as the country's savior. Uh, and and, and I, I think that that anger and alienation has poisoned American politics. Uh, the January 6th insurrection was an important manifestation of that. And Kelly, even if it's true, and I hope it's true, uh, that, that Trump's own star is now fading, Trumpism uh, ain't gone. Uh, and, and, and therefore, this domestic crisis... Uh, that uh, I, I think has cost the country dearly. Uh, the cynicism, the alienation, uh, the, the anger, the, the contempt for anybody who doesn't believe the way I believe, that's going to stick with us for quite a while. And I think that if you want to know where that came from, one important answer is the is the Iraq war. Yeah. So I it's agree. in that sense that I think uh, this, you know, this is this this crisis. We we ain't seen the end of this crisis yet. I'm, I'm I'm sorry to say. With regard to the present moment, I think you put your finger on the key thing, and that is that the Biden administration. Uh, I mean, I'm in, I'm in the camp that thinks that the Iraq War, uh, excuse me, the Ukraine War, uh, shouldn't have happened. It's a needless war. Uh, that that effective diplomacy on our part and on the part of others could could have not necessarily would have, but could have prevented this horrible uh, episode. Uh, and I further believe that, that the Biden administration's ideological framing of the war, uh, the justification that this, this is a cosmic struggle between authoritarianism and democracy and the future of freedom is dependent upon the outcome, uh, is, is not only uh, fundamentally wrong, uh, but it's also dangerous in the sense that it makes it that much more difficult to negotiate an end to the war. Uh, and lately, I've been worrying more and more about the, the nuclear danger, which, which, which doesn't get talked about. You know, in, in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, among the chattering classes, uh, somehow, it, it was talked about briefly, but some, somehow it's t- I think it's taken for granted uh, that that nuclear weapons will not be used. I don't think we can take that for granted. And if if nuclear weapons are used in any in any way, even simply as sort of a demonstration, in other words, if we shatter the nuclear taboo, whoa! I mean, uh, the, the the implications of that I think are just beyond our capacity even to imagine. Uh, but but for for people, for example who are gunning to have a showdown between ourselves and the People's Republic of China, well, if it's a showdown that involves nukes, you know, the planet is at risk. Uh, So I think that the the Biden administration has not served us well in this oversimplified ideological framing of, of the war. It's not realistic. 
is not helpful. Right, and, and that was one of the the points you were making in your new foreign affairs piece, talking about the the, the reckoning that wasn't uh, that the the war in Ukraine has essentially distracted us or or caused us to to forget about the legacy of of the last twenty years of war. Uh, and you were talking about uh, some of Biden's the, the gap between Biden's policies and his rhetoric. And you you warned that Biden's carefully calibrated policy could come to more closely resemble his soaring, ill-considered rhetoric. Um, and then we know that Ukraine is not the only place where this has happened. Uh, he's been similarly careless when talking about Taiwan yeah. and even the prospect of attacking Iran. Right. Uh, so how, how do we avoid overstretch and, and uh, new conflicts I, when the I, president's I, words are running so far ahead of what the U.S. is obligated to do? Well, I mean, his words are running ahead, but I mean, he's got lots of company. I mean, I, I know, I know. Within the Quincy Institute, we've been very concerned about sort of the uh, the, the assumption that a new Cold War is now inevitable is is upon us. You know, that the world is now divided into two halves. It's the the free world, and then it's the world dominated by 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 China and and Russia. That that seems to me to be a mindset. Uh, which you know, I'm in Walpole, Massachusetts. I'm not in in Washington, but it does seem to be a mindset that has taken hold. In that sense, we're sort of back in in what 1946, 1947, 1948, uh, when every you know every, every sort of uh, event uh, crisis <clears throat> was was read in in ways that seemed to <clears throat> affirm. That, the, that a Cold War uh, was unavoidable. Uh, even when there were events that, as historians, we would say in retrospect, uh, were not, not related. I mean, uh, I, I mean uh, and, uh, what's an example? Well, I think, I think an example is uh, the, the, the onset of the Korean War in the summer of 1950, uh, which, was, which was read by uh, the Truman administration, as a direct assault ordered by uh, Stalin uh, to to test, you know, whether or not the Americans were really serious about their policy of containment. I think we now know that the origins of the Korean War were far more complicated, uh, and and that really the 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 impetus for action uh, came from uh, the dictator of North Korea. Uh, who wanted to, from his point of view, uh, reunite his his divided country? Nor we would say now was the was the government of Syngman Rhee controlling uh, uh, South Korea all that innocent, <laughs> and, and nor were they committed to liberal democratic values. So this tendency to read events in a way that fit the pattern favored by the ideologues. Uh, I think becomes a source of ill-advised decisions. It's happened in the past. It happened with Vietnam. You know the domino theory, the the the, the assumptions of monolithic communism, so that the North Vietnamese ostensibly were carrying water for the Chinese, who were of course ostensibly doing the bidding of the Soviets. All of that turned out to be nonsense, uh, but it but it fit with an ideological frame. Ah, yes, monolithic communism. They're all in cahoots together. Um, 
I think some of that's going on now, and it's very dangerous. Yeah, when you, you see a lot of that with the, the assumption that all authoritarian governments must be somehow in alignment or must be cooperating yes. with each other. Yes, uh, that, that, that there's somehow, that this is like a great historic uh, or historical, you use the word alignment. I think that's exactly the right term, you know, a movement. Uh, and it's it's ridiculous, but we're falling for it again. Yeah, and at the same time, we're also engaging in, in uh, we're taking policy decisions that, that end up pushing some of these countries closer together than, than they would otherwise be. And so oh, and there's no question about that. Right? It ends up being a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in that way. Yes, um, exactly. But, uh, uh, as, as we look back at the history of modern U.S. foreign policy, let's say since, since the start of the Cold War, we see that there have rarely been serious reckonings with major policy failures. Uh, nothing was really learned from the Iraq debacle or from Afghanistan, and it seems more than 50 years on, very little was learned from Vietnam either. Uh, what, what accounts for this stubbornness and error uh, in our foreign policy over the decades? Uh, is, is it this, this uh, sort of ideological prison that, that people are trapped in of their own making, or, or is it something else? No, I think, I, well, again, big question, complicated answer, I, probably. Right. But, I, but I do think the ideological prism is the place to begin. I mean, what do we mean by that? Well, I think what we mean is American exceptionalism. You know, this, this conviction that goes all the way back to the founding of the Anglo-American colonies in North America has exp- expressed itself in different ways over time expressed itself with you know, different sort of uh, intensity over time. But nonetheless, the conviction that we are, we, we are ultimately, we are the chosen people. You know, we are called upon. Uh, and, and we are called upon to deliver history uh, to a particular destination. Now, when I say it like that, it sounds absurd. It sounds preposterous. It sounds like something that no serious person, certainly no serious nation, would 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 believe, but we do. <laughs> I mean, and our politicians say it over and over and over again. So much so that I think at the end, of, it's not that the American, you know, the American people, God love them. Um, we're, we're we're busy. We're 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 distracted. You know, we pay more attention to Taylor Swift probably than we do to what's going on in in, in Ukraine. Uh, but but. And, 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 and the ideas of American exceptionalism play into our own conceit, you know, that, that we are, that this is a special nation. Uh, but it, it just is, is a, poses a barrier, I think, to seeing the world as it is uh, and a barrier to seeing ourselves as we are. Uh, and and that, yeah, that's and that's been a problem now for for quite a long time. Uh, you you do offer some uh, remedies or some uh, possible remedies at the end of your foreign affairs piece uh, for how we can try to to change our approach to the world. Uh, what one thing you say uh, in your piece, you say a, a place to begin is to reconfigure the U.S. military into a force designed to protect the American people rather than to serve as an instrument of global power projection. Uh, so, and that, that's a that's quite a, a tall order, as we know. Uh, how do we get there from where we are today? Well, if I could give you a good answer, I would be 
very, very <laughs> famous and probably very wealthy. Uh, you know, it, it, we, we've got a, we, we, we've got a mindset, we've got an ideology that uh, elites in particular are committed to. The purpose of the Quincy Institute uh, is to try to change that mindset, to challenge that mindset, to introduce into the discourse within the Beltway and I think into the discourse more broadly in the general public that there are different ways to think about America's role in the world and, there, and that there, there is a need to think critically about what, our, what military power does, can't do, sh- shouldn't do. Uh, and I, I must say, in, in my old age here, my participation in the Quincy Institute is something that I am enormously proud of. But I don't think any of us uh, at Quincy think that, you know, by the time we get to the next presidential election, that we are going to declare that we have won the debate and we'll be able to go out of business. I mean, this is a long-term enterprise. It's, a, it's, it's an enterprise worth doing. Uh, but, but changing the mindset and challenging the entrenched uh, sources of, of, of power uh, that, that to some degree exist to satisfy their own needs. Uh, to challenge the corruption. I mean, uh, our colleague Eli Clifton, of course, is sort of on this uh, quite consistently. I mean, but there have been these pieces in the Washington Post just in the last week or so about the retired senior naval officers that basically have sold their souls uh, in order to advance the sale of uh, nuclear submarines to Australia. Uh, I mean, it is utterly disgraceful, and yet I think in many respects we'd nod and we say, "Well, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that goes on in Washington." What are, you know? What are you going to do? So I think we, you know, we we keep fighting the good fight. Uh, we keep we keep pointing to the negative consequences of our misuse of American military power. We keep reminding the American people. We keep trying to 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 develop allies you know, in the Congress uh, who share this perspective in favor of military restraint. And we, and we do it without any expectation that everything's going to be hunky-dory by, by the day after tomorrow, but we do it because we know it's a fight worth fighting. Yeah. That was like a sermon. I yeah, no, that was fantastic. Holy cow. I mean, in Kelly, the first... Kelly's... She, she's <laughs> I'm ready to go. here. <laughs> I'm ready to crash the war party. Um, no, in the first segment, we got all riled up over uh, the Iraq war anniversary because, you know, we had been reading articles by Eli Lake and, and David Frum who were justifying their positions on, on the war. And, and I said, well, you know, as, as depressing as this is, it, it is a good opportunity to, run, to remind people of what it was like back then. And, you know, another thing that I that I could have said, too, was most people do recognize that the Iraq war was a failure, that the 20 years we spent in Afghanistan was a failure. I think it would be even more reprehensible if we were sitting here now and discussing this uh, while the mainstream media was still living under some fiction or 
or they were perpetuating right. a fiction that everything was fine right. and we did all these great things for Iraqis and Afghanis. Right. And, you know, so I feel right. like there, there, there's more of a sense of reality now than there were, there was 20 years ago and no so small part, you know, organizations like Quincy and magazines like the American conservative and, and other magazines that have been forthright and pushing back against the narrative um, and book that your books and, and others. Um, but yeah, there is, there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> and, um, but I, I appreciate you coming on the show. I, I, I'm taking a lot of your time here today. And I, I did want to note that you were uh, our first guest on, on, on crashing a war party. And I, I appreciate you were able to come on um, at this auspicious moment of the 20 year anniversary of the Iraq war. It's been my pleasure. And anytime, Okay, anytime. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter, Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>